All right, yeah, welcome to week two of our joy series. We are chasing joy through the entire book of Philippians. By the way, buckle up. We're running an endurance race for good reason with this one. We're going to take some time and even let our spiritual food digest. We're going to be in Philippians for a good chunk of the first half of this year. And I, for one, am super excited about it. I love this book. God has some amazing things to teach us. Titled today's message is Where Do We Begin? Well, the beginning, right? That's the right place to start. We're going to do that. So do me a favor right now. Grab your Bible if you brought it with you. Pull it out. Open it up to Philippians chapter 1, verse 1. You could, if you don't have your Bible with you, grab that Bible that's underneath the seat in front of you. If you want to pull that out, I'm on, in Philippians uh, chapter 1. It's, it's, it's page 1,178 in that Bible, 1,178. But even better yet, if you have not yet grabbed one of these, make sure you do it on your way out. We're asking for a suggested donation of five bucks. If you don't have that with you today, we want you to have it, grab it anyway. This is a great resource, and the intention, the heart is that over this series, you're going to like wear this out. You're going to bring it with you to church. You're going to mark it up. You're going to put sermon notes in here. You're going to highlight if you're a highlighter kind of person. You're going to doodle if you're a doodling kind of person. Maybe you put a hangman game in here if you get bored with me talking at some point. No, don't do that. Write your notes in here. The idea is that this is designed to be a resource you're going to put up on your shelf. And five, ten years from now, it's a great resource to pull off of your shelf. And, oh, this is what I was thinking about. This is what I was studying in 2024. And the book of Philippians is timeless. Here's the big idea we're wrestling with today. Good beginnings start with grace and peace. They do. We're leaning into that. By the way, I want to ask you for a little bit of grace. I shared with you last Sunday that my interaction with the book of Philippians has been a, well, a long time. This has been a sermon series, 29 years in the making. And uh, I told you last week that to pass my Greek final, I just memorized the book of Philippians. Well, I memorized the NIV 1984 version. The Bibles in the seat backs underneath the seat in front of you, that's the NIV 2011 version. You might happen to notice that this is the ESV version. It's doing a thing in my brain. Every once in a while, you're going to say, well, that's not what's up on the screen. Well, it's because I'm rem remembering the Bible in a different version. But let me say this as well. There is some great Bible study value in comparing and contrasting different translations. We're going to do some of that through this series. Why? Well, Bible translators, they have a tough job because language is dynamic. It changes even in the course of my lifetime. I've watched language change we're going to wrestle with the text a little bit over the next few weeks, and sometimes we'll put it up in that translation. Sometimes we'll put it up in another, and we'll compare and we'll contrast. All right, chapter 1, verse 1. Let me pray over this. We're going to spend time in Philippians. Would you join me right now in praying over the text? God, thank you. Thank you for your word, which you say elsewhere in Scripture is sharper than a double-edged sword. 
Lord, I pray that you use this in a powerful way to challenge us, to grow us, to inform us, to correct us, to encourage us. Lord, as we chase joy, timeless, Philippians speaks today as it did 2,000 years ago. And we invite that process into our hearts and our minds right now. In your name, we pray. Amen. Salutes and salutations. Chapter 1, verse 1, would you read with me? Paul and Timothy. By the way, when you see a bold word, you might circle that or underline that in your Philippians journal. We're going to interact with that. Servants of Christ Jesus. To all the saints in Christ Jesus who are at Philippi, together with the overseers, that word, we're going to unpack that here in a minute, and deacons, here's the thesis statement, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. What did I say a bit ago? Good beginnings start with grace and peace. Last week, we introduced how Philippians is timeless, and it speaks to our lives today. We're diving in in a big way this week. I was thinking, I was thinking last week as some of you were filling out these postcards and mailing them as an invite to invite somebody to join you for this series, we do not receive handwritten letters much anymore. That's what makes them special. And I was just thinking about the times I've interacted with letters in my lifetime. I'm thinking about specifically times like when my grandma and my grandpa passed away, great aunts that passed away, and when Dawn's grandma, when she passed away, and going through some of that stuff that they left behind, they passed from this life to the life to come, and interacting with those letters, it's kind of a lost art. I wonder what my kids will interact with, some hard drive somewhere, I guess, the correspondence that I've shared. And even those letters, sometimes there's a faint hint of perfume because this was a love letter that was sent back and forth across an ocean. My grandpa served in World War I, probably wrote some letters back and forth with his sweetheart. That lost art. Paul wrote a letter, literally a letter, to the church in Philippi. And it got me thinking, got me wondering, if Philippians was written today, what form would that communication take place in. It's too long for a text. I don't see it happening that way. So my guess is, if it were written today, maybe it would be in the form of uh, an email. So I don't want to be too cute with this, but if you'll bear with me, I want to walk our way through these first two verses in Philippians, and I want to use an email as our vehicle that we're going to do that. Let's go ahead and put it up. This, oh, we stare at this. If you work in an office, you stare at this kind of thing all the day, you, all, all, all the time. You've got from, to, CC, BCC subject. And then right here, let's go ahead and pop in the first two verses that we're going to interact with today. Here's why. In my opinion, if Paul were writing this letter to the Philippians, probably verse 3 and following would be the body of the letter that, in my opinion, would probably be included as an, through the lens of email etiquette as an attachment to the email. The first two verses you could put in the category of, you know, when you type an email and you're sending a document to somebody, you got to give them a little context first, and you got to write a little something in the body of the email. I think those are the two verses we're looking at today. 
We just read the text. What we're missing is the from line and the rest of those lines. So let's go ahead and fill that in. Who is this from? We've already recognized this. This is from, from Paul at apostle.com. Somebody right now is looking it up to see if that's actually a domain. I did not do that. I hope, well, I'm not sure if it is. Paul at apostle.com. He is an apostle. How does he get to be an apostle? It's important that before we dive too deeply into this letter that we examine the author, how God has shaped his heart, how God has shaped his mind. If you're taking notes, by the way, this is the kind of thing you'd want to write down in the margins of that journal. The apostle Paul, well, he was transformed. He wrote several letters that made their way into our New Testament, including the book of Romans. I wonder how many times when he's writing a letter, he transposes his own experience into the letter as he's writing it. That word transformed, he wrote that word in Romans chapter 12, verse 2, which says, do not conform to the pattern of this world any longer, but rather be transformed by the renewing of your mind. That happened to Paul or should I say, Saul. He was known as Saul first. The thing about Paul, he lived through a seismic shift in culture, probably the greatest transition in culture that our world has ever seen. Jesus ushered in a new era. Paul was right behind him in building that early church. He saw amazing change. And I would suggest he saw that starting and beginning first inside of his own heart. There's a Christian thinker, author. She has a funny name with profound thoughts, though. Her name is Phyllis Tickle. Funny name. She said this one time. She said, every 500 years, the church has a yard sale. It's a profound thing to think about. In other words, uh, words, systems of church governance and systems of how we interact with culture shift dramatically. Paul lived through one of those. We just described that. You could go back in time, and you could see how Paul, 500 years before that time, well, there's the diaspora. There's uh, carried off into captivity in Babylon, and that roughly 500 years before Paul was a big transition for God's people. Go 500 years before that, you're talking about the time of the Davidic dynasty. That's a big transition for God's people. 500 years roughly before that, you're looking at the Exodus, huge transition. If you go 500 years before that, you're looking at Father Abraham, massive transition. Let's go forward, shall we? 500 years from Paul, you're looking at the monastic system and the death of Rome and the early systems that Paul sets up. And we're going to explore and study together. 500 years after that, you're looking at the great schism, the East Church and the West Church divide and conquer. You go 500 years from that point, roughly, you're looking at Martin Luther and the Reformation. Huge change in church as a response to culture at large. You skip 500 years from there and, well, roughly, we're talking about today. This is why it's so important to do what we're doing. We're studying a book that has massive influence through the ministry of Paul. Saul becomes Paul. 
it still has massive influence today. We're living through a similar time of transition, in my opinion. We'll talk about that more here in just a minute. Paul was transformed. Well, to talk about transformation, you have to talk about a from and a to. Can I point to you? Um, here's part of his transition or transformation. He is uh, in the hand map here, if you want to refer to that. He's walking the international highway on the way up to the city of Damascus, modern-day Syria. Saul gets knocked on his can for Jesus. Jesus says, Saul, Saul, bright light, why do you persecute me? We're going to read about that persecution here in just a second. You know what? That's not quite right. He wasn't knocked on his can for Jesus. He was actually knocked on his can by Jesus. Somebody here today maybe feels that. Maybe you're feeling some discipline in your spiritual life right now. Can I just suggest to you that's not a bad thing? Paul's transformation has massive effect to grow God's kingdom. So if you're feeling disciplined by God right now, well, maybe you lean into that like Saul, who becomes Paul. But real quick, let's look at this transformation. He was transformed from persecutor because he began his, well, ministry career on the wrong side of the fight, if you will. He was the, a part of the Gestapo of the early church. That's not a bad metaphor, actually. Acts chapter 8 is where we see this. Let's read together. Acts chapter 8, beginning with verse 1. And Saul approved of their killing Stephen, martyr. First martyr in the early church. He's stoned to death. He's not smoking something funny. Literally rocks thrown at his head until he's dead. That kind of stoning. And what happens? Well, Saul is standing there approving of this. On that day, a great persecution broke out against the church in Jerusalem, and all except the apostles were scattered throughout Judea and Samaria. Godly men buried Stephen. That's a powerful ministry, isn't it? And mourned deeply for him. But Saul began to destroy the church. This is where he starts. Going from house to house, he dragged off both men and women. I'm picturing by their hair. That's not very um, gentlemanly, is it? I'm picturing it. The text is men and women. I don't even like that word picture, thinking about what he did, dragging them off to jail. There's a transformation here. He put them in prison. It's from and to. He was transformed then, that road to Damascus, from persecutor. Well, then he became persecuted. How so? Well, he's writing this letter that we're studying right now from jail. Read with me. If you skip down a few verses, Philippians chapter 1, verse 12, let's read this. I want you to know, brothers, that what has happened to me, something's happened, has really served to advance the gospel so that it has become known through the whole imperial guard, okay, he's in jail, and to all the rest that my imprisonment is for Christ. And most of the brothers, having become confident in the Lord by my imprisonment, are much more bold to speak the word without fear. By the way, if you want to grab the context for this, a lot of scholars would point to this moment, writing the book of Philippians. Well, you can pinpoint it in the book of Acts. 
Acts chapter 28, if you want to look this up. Verse 28, he says this, Therefore, I want you to know that God's salvation has been sent to the Gentiles, and they will listen. For two whole years then, Paul stayed there in his own rented house and welcomed all who came to see him. He proclaimed the kingdom of God and taught about the Lord Jesus Christ with all boldness and without hindrance. Let's go back one slide real quick. When it says he was in his own rented house, the question is, where? Well, we know for a fact that there was Rome. Likely, he's writing the book of Philippians from capital city, Rome, capital of the empire. Now, you need to know this. Some scholars would say, ah, he didn't write it from there. He probably read it going back to our hand map right here on the edge of the Mediterranean Sea. This is a city called Caesarea Maritima. He was also imprisoned there before he was sent to Rome. It's possible that he wrote the letter there. Some scholars would even suggest that he wrote this letter from Ephesus. My opinion, he writes this from Rome. In my opinion, he writes it toward the end of his life, and there's an opportunity here to grab. He's a man that's looking at possible death, and there's some profoundness to that in his writing that we can lean into. Now, let me just ask you this. We ask you this. As you think about this idea of transformation, how about you? As we journey through Philippians, as we're chasing joy, think about the heart transformation that Paul goes through from standing on the promises to standing with the persecuted. Think about that. Last summer, we did a whole series on recovering Pharisees like me. As we chase joy, are there still some things in your heart like Paul you need to live into your complete transformation? What do you need to let go of so that you can grab a hold of more of the things of Jesus? Well, that's the author. That's the two line. Some of you at the beginning of this message were like, how's he going to preach a whole sermon on two verses? Well, buckle up. We're not done yet. We've got Paul in the two line. Let's skip down to the BCC line. Blind carbon copy. What do you use that for? Well, sometimes you're trying to be sneaky. You're trying to let somebody know something without everybody else in the email knowing that they know it. But many times, this is how I use BCC, I'm just doing an FYI. If I'm sending a letter from uh, me and somebody else, I'll include them in that. They don't need to weigh in on the email. Nobody else needs to reply to them. I'm just giving them an FYI. Heads up, I sent this email. You can cross that off of your to-do list. I think that's what's happening here with Paul. He's writing this letter, not just from him, but also, let's go ahead and pop it up there, Timothy at FCCEphesus.church. FCC Ephesus. We know that Timothy served at the first Christian church of Ephesus, literally, for a time. I grew up in the independent Christian church. This is my tribe. I served a first Christian church for a season. And as a kid, I worshiped at two different first Christian churches. First Christian church of Anna, Illinois. First Christian church of Jacksonville, Illinois. And as a kid, I always wrestled with that title just a little bit. I thought, man, that's kind of an egotistical statement we're making. Maybe we need to hire a better marketing director. We're the first Christian church. What kind of a statement are we making to the other Christians in this town? 
on. Well, Timothy's literally serving at the first Christian church in Ephesus. And Paul's including him as a co-author, if you will, of the thoughts that he's getting ready to share. Some things that you need to know about Timothy before we dive too deep past these first two verses. First of all, he rode shotgun with Paul, specifically during his second missionary journey. We can read about this just a few verses before we read about the birth of the Philippian First Christian Church. Acts chapter 16, verse 1. Check this out. Paul came to Derbe and then to Lystra, and there a disciple named Timothy lived whose mother was Jewish and a believer, but whose father was a Greek. We're getting some context clues here. Timothy has a couple of different cultures literally running through his veins. The believers at Lystra and Iconium spoke well of him. He had a good reputation. Paul wanted to take him along on the journey, so he circumcised him. Wait. Stop. You can't just sneak that into the text. That's a big deal right there. He circumcised him. Why, you might ask? That's a great question. Because of the Jews who lived in that area, for they all knew that his father was a Greek. So you mean to tell me that Paul said to Timothy, hey, I've got a big favor to ask of you. Yeah, no kidding. And Timothy says, yes, I will. Why? Well, because there are people who don't know Jesus yet. We need you to do this through a lens of evangelism. These Jews, they need to be convinced that you're sincere. Could you meet them halfway? Would you be willing to do this on their behalf? Because some of these Jews, they have not yet followed Christ. And here's an opportunity for you to show them your sincerity. Oh, my goodness. You talk about a giant sacrifice. Timothy says yes. And they all know it. Wow, this is a tangent, but I think it's a must-needed tangent. I love this phrase. Think about this phrase. We'll do anything short of sin to reach people who are far from God. Timothy lives up to this. Anything. Now, I'm not willing to sin to reach people, but anything else, it's on the table. When I was a kid in the churches, the first Christian churches that I grew up in, there was a bit of a stigma against tattoos and earrings and things like this. And I remember wrestling with that. I got my ear pierced for the wrong reasons. Uh, Not for Jesus reasons, more for... I don't know, fashion, probably peer pressure is why I did that. I've never seen my dad move so fast as when he came around the table and grabbed my ear and said, what in the world have you done, son? We'll do anything short of sin to reach people who are far from God. You know, we ought to be asking that question more. Is this sin or is this an opportunity for me to connect with my culture? And if you're looking down your nose at somebody else who is doing one of those things, you need to ask yourself, is that sin Or is this something that really falls short of that? And if their motivations are to reach people and to connect with people, that is so, so important. Notice this about Timothy. Not only was, what did we say, uh, he was riding shotgun with Paul, but he also was no hired hand. 
He wasn't just uh, there to carry Paul's bags. Look at this, Philippians chapter 2, if you skip down to verse 19, this is the trust that Paul put in him. He says, I hope in the Lord Jesus to send Timothy to you soon. Timothy, so that I too may be cheered by news of you, for I have no one like him, genuinely concerned. Some people think about their own interests, not Timothy, uh, not those of Jesus Christ. But you know Timothy's proven worth, how as a son with a father, he served with me in the gospel. Paul, a spiritual father, thinks of Timothy as a spiritual son. This is evidenced by the fact, you need to know this about Timothy as well, that he and Paul, well, they were pen pals. You could read the letters of First and Second Timothy, and you can see the affection that Paul is pouring into that language as he's speaking love and truth to Timothy. Can we go back to our email? We've BCC'd Timothy because he is one of the co-authors kind of of this letter. He's included in the correspondence. They're both described as servants. That's a big word. You might be tempted like me to look at that and say, oh, wow, is this false humility? Uh-uh. It's real humility. They're saying, listen, uh, this, this word denotes dependence and obedience and an acknowledgement of ownership because we are owned by Jesus, who, by the way, Jesus also described himself as a servant. This signifies intense devotion to the Lord. And Paul is saying, together with Timothy, we serve as servants of Jesus. How do we apply this? Let me just ask you this question. Are you doing life by yourself? Write this down. Don't do life alone. If you're Paul, who's your Timothy to your Paul? If you're Timothy, who's your Paul to your Timothy? You see what I'm saying? Are you doing life together with somebody, maybe somebody who's a couple of steps ahead of you on the journey, and also with somebody who's a couple of steps behind you on the journey, do life. We're wired for this. I was reminded of that this past week. We were talking about the... um, well, what we're leaning into this summer, the residency program. I was just talking about that. And at least two staff members grabbed me this past week and just kind of said, hey, listen, I'm so excited about this. One of them was Shaylee. I'm so excited about this opportunity because I want to get to pour into somebody who's just a step or two behind me on the journey to encourage them and to build them up. We're hardwired for this. This is how God made us. All right, let's look at the two. We've got the author, the from, we've got the BCC, Timothy, let's fill in two, the recipient of this email, this letter. This is to the saints in Christ Jesus at fcc.philippi.church. The saints, the saints in Christ Jesus. What's a saint? Literally, it means a holy one. Philippians, I'm sorry, 1 Peter chapter 2 describes a saint. You're a chosen people, a royal priesthood, a holy nation. He called you out of darkness into his wonderful light. This is what a saint looks like. By by the way, Revelation chapter 1, Revelation chapter 5 reflect this idea of sainthood. Do you think of yourself as a saint? If you're living in Christ Jesus, you are are a saint. Claim that identity. Now, write this down. 
You're not a saint on your own ability. Jesus makes us saints. So ask yourself this question. Are you living up to the title? You might be tempted to think of that through the lens of am I doing the right things or am I not doing the wrong things? Sure, that plays in there somewhere, but mostly it's are you following the source of your sainthood? Are you walking with Jesus? Are you aligned with him in this moment of your life? Because that's what makes you a saint. Servants and saints. Paul picks up on this idea clearly in Philippians chapter 2, verse 3. I can't wait to study that passage in Philippians together where he says, do nothing from selfish ambition or vain conceit. There's my NIV sneaking in. But in humility, count others more significant than yourselves. I like the way the NIV says this. Count others better than yourself. Put them in an elevated position. That is a great picture of humility. By the way, if you want to read the context of how this um, passage comes about, hit Acts chapter 16. It's all over that text. You could read that by way of homework this week. You're going to see as we study through this text together, we think about the uh, two line. This is written to the saints in Philippi. Here's a profile of the Philippian church. Let's put this up. You might want to write this down. Predominantly, it's Gentile folks not Jewish people. Predominantly, it's female. I would point you to Philippians chapter 4, verse 2. There's this story. By the way, gals, if you're expecting a baby and you happen to know it's a girl, might I point out to you, here are two great names for your child. Yodi and Syntyche. They won't get teased on the playground. You're good with that. Apparently, these ladies in the first century church are kind of at odds with each other, and they're bickering and they're fighting, but this is predominantly a female church. They were also very supportive in the preaching of the gospel. Philippians chapter 4. Let's put that up. Let me just pull out a couple of key phrases here. No church entered into this partnership with me in giving and receiving except you only. And then what does it say? The next slide, even at Thessalonica, you sent me help for my needs. This is a supportive church. It's a generous church. We talked about this a few months ago during New Life. We preached out of 2 Corinthians. Perhaps you remember this. Let's put it up on the screen. The Philippian church, we talked about this. They were up here, and the Corinthian church is down here, and Paul's writing to Corinth saying, hey, could you be more like Philippi? Grace given to the Macedonian churches. That's Philippi. I'm in the middle of a severe tr uh, trial, and uh, they are too, and there's overflowing joy. They're extreme poverty. They're a model. Rich generosity. And then his call to action to this church down here is be like them. See also that you excel in this grace of giving. We unpacked that together a few months ago. They're a generous church, even though they're impoverished. And this last one, we'll put up this on the screen, profile of the Philippian church. They're caring. It's not a bad list to look at as we're thinking about what does it look like to be a healthy church. If you want to read about the caring line there, you could read about that. If you skip down to Philippians chapter 4, read verse 10 and following. 
Okay, let's jump ahead, if we can, to the CC line of this email. Let's copy some folks here. The leaders of the church, you've got elders, you've got deacons. They're translated overseers are our elders. That's the word that's used in many translations and deacons. Let me show you the organizational design of an FCC, a first Christian church or you could say a first century church. Well, it's made up of saints, it's overseen by elders, and it's served with the assistance of deacons. Let me put up a snapshot of the health of the elders here. The elders were men charged with guarding the flock and providing spiritual food. You don't get confused with the language, some spaces, if it's translated literally, they're called bishops. The word here is presbyter. Sometimes it's pastors. This is a word that literally means shepherds. And you can see this in Acts chapter 20. The elders are needed to open up a can, spiritually speaking, on some folks inside the walls of the church who need church discipline. He calls on the elders to do that. Acts chapter 20, verse 28, well, we see these words, overseers, and shepherds. He's talking about the elders here. If you want to see some further characteristics of what it looks like to be an elder, go to 1 Peter chapter 5, and you can see a list there, especially the word shepherd shows up a lot there. And out of that, you'll see a couple of other characteristics for elders. Usually, they're older men. Don't get too hung up on age. I think Paul's saying older in the faith more than he is older with gray hairs. Sometimes those two things go together, but they don't always. How about this one? They are there to feed or pastor the flock under their charge. Shepherd, that's the word there. Copied the elders. He also copies the deacons. They're also viewed as leaders. That's the word we see right there. This word literally means servants or ministers. If you want to read a job description of the deacons in the early church, go to 1 Timothy chapter 3, verse 8. I want to land the plane by filling in our subject line item. He's written the salutation. He's attached the letter. I don't know about him, but I always land on, well, now I need a good subject. I need that to grab their attention. And so here's the subject. Good beginnings start with grace and peace. Grace and peace. Have you ever walked into a room? Maybe it happened over Christmas when you walked into a family gathering. Maybe it happened you walked into a board meeting recently. Maybe it's happened when you walk into a parent-teacher conference and you just walk in and you just sense oh, this is a good room. I want to be here. I want to linger with these people. This feels like a safe place for me to be me and for them to be them and to lean on one another's mutual expertise and there's an opportunity to learn and grow from each other. My guess is if I just described a room that you've walked into recently and you felt those things, my gut tells me you're sensing grace and peace. I want to point out something to you about grace and peace the word grace, this is a Greek word, a classic Greek word. It was a common greeting between the Greek-thinking people. It speaks of wishing unmerited favor and kindness upon them. That's not the only word. The word peace is used here. You could travel to Israel today, and you'll hear over and over and over again, 
Shabbat Shalom. Shabbat Shalom, the peace of the Sabbath or the peace of God's rest be upon you. It's a common greeting by Jewish people. You've got Greek thinking people and Jewish thinking people right here in the second verse of this letter. Can I note this? Grace and peace, Paul is saying, are for everyone. Greeks, Jews alike, Grace and peace is for everyone. Here's the question. Are grace and peace available to everyone through you? Are you playing favorites? Even without thinking about it, are you showing favoritism? Even in your thoughts, your prayers toward people, do you think of grace and peace being available to all through you? It's a good question to wrestle with. Note that Paul credits the source of that question. He says, grace and peace comes from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. And this is exactly what we would want to lean into, this peace that only God provides through him. I showed you a triangle last week. I want to wrap up the message today with a similar triangle. Let's build that triangle together right now. The peace that God's calling for is peace with God. If you want to read about that, you could find it in Romans chapter 5, verse 1. It's peace with people, living well in peace together in community. We're going to study more of that as we journey through the book of Philippians. And then it's peace, and this one might be one of the hardest to come by. Peace with oneself. When you land there, you land in chapter 4 of Philippians. It talks about this crazy peace that passes understanding. It doesn't even make sense through the lens of a worldly thinking. That's what we're aiming for. Let me end the message today. As we think ahead even already towards next Sunday and what we're going to study then, are you thinking through the lens of grace and peace for others around you? I said this earlier, and it bears repeating. Paul lived through a seismic shift in culture. He led well through a seismic shift in culture. What if, what if our friend Phyllis Tickle is right? What if we're living through a seismic shift in culture right now? It's so important that we study a book like Philippians to ground ourselves in ancient truth. What if? What if there's a world out there that's desperate to see God's grace and God's peace leak through you as we chase joy together? Would you stand up with me? I want to pray for the weeks that we have in front of us. Pray toward that end. We just cast that vision. Would you bow your heads with me? We're going to respond in worship. Let's pray together. God, I thank you for this moment in time that we have to chase joy. As we think about grace, we think about your peace, we think about what we have that we know to be true, the dear truth that we hold on to, that Jesus is Lord. This week, let us take that truth Push it deeply down into our hearts, live into that truth, and shine that truth everywhere we go. Grace and peace toward others as well. It's in your name, in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.